0: Will you please welcome Clinton Aylin.
1: That's when 1977 really started. Um, in July 1976. Um, so, uh, for those who don't know, that that version of submission is not the version from Bollocks, which we will hear later. That version is the one that was on the notorious infamous and rather wonderful spunk bootleg that came out the week before Nevermind the Bollocks. So the the, the story of Nevermind the Bollocks is actually the story of two albums. Uh, one is the album that Malcolm McLaren really wanted to come out, and the, and the other album is the one that did come out. Um, and Malcolm, being the great counterculture hero that he was, what he did to sabotage the release of Never Mind the Bollocks uh, rather skillfully. Um, So I sort of want to cover that whole story. So the version that you just heard was recorded uh, in uh, Denmark Street in London. If you're fans of the Cormoran Strike TV films... That office that they're actually, which is a real office, that they're actually filming that TV series in was originally the Sex Pistols rehearsal studio. And it is where they recorded that track. Um, so there used to, it used to be a rehearsal room up at the top, directly opposite uh, what used to be Helter Skelter Books. I don't know if any of you ever went to Helter Skelter Books. But for many years before it was Helter Skelter Books, it also was a recording studio, and it was called Regent. And they recorded almost everything in mono. Uh, A lot of the early Rolling Stones songs that the Sex Pistols loved when they sounded like a punk band were recorded at Regent. Them, Van Morrison's band, recorded at Regent studio. And top fact... The only song the Beatles ever recorded outside Abbey Road was recorded at Regent Studio. Anyone know which song? Elliot, fixing a hole. Uh, Paul McCartney wanted the sound of the mono sound of uh, of the Regent Studio. Uh, they used the soundproofing egg boxes. But You know, those cardboard boxes, your eggs come in. They baffled the entire studio with these egg boxes. Um, but that was where the Sex Pistols began. And um, they rehearsed in that room even before they played their first gig. And as I describe in Anakin, the year zero, St. Martin's College, the art college in the old days, was literally directly opposite Denmark Street. So they wheeled their equipment out of the rehearsal studio and across the road in order to play their debut gig in November 1975. Uh, what you heard was the exam- was an example of what Melody Maker called a band who couldn't play. Um, even at the point at which they recorded those tracks in July 76, the media, even the music media, was saying that they couldn't play. Um, and they pretty obviously could. The Never Mind the Bollocks album, one of the great oddities of the album is that four of the most important people, possibly the four most important people, behind the making of the album do not appear on it, or at least barely appear on it. So... Malcolm McLaren, who masterminded it, is not on the record. Dave Goodman, who produced the song you just heard and was the original Sex Pistols producer and, in my opinion, the best, is not on that album. Glenn Matlock, the man who wrote all the songs, is on exactly three tracks on Nevermind the Bollocks. Do we know which three? (laughs) The first three singles. Um, and the fourth person who doesn't play on the album is of course Sid Vicious (laughs) ostensibly the bass player for the band but of course they would take him into the studio they would sit him down he would play the bass part he would leave the studio and the minute he left the studio Steve Jones would wipe his bass track and overdub his own because Sid couldn't play Um, according to legend Sid does play the bass on bodies which is possible because it's two notes Um, but he doesn't play on any of the rest of the album Um, and in fact when the band recorded God Save the Queen and Pretty Vacant the second and third singles they'd already fired Glenn Matlock so they had to pay him to come back (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> into the studio to use him as the bass player on those two singles because Sid couldn't play at that point, and so in fact Glenn is on both "God Save the Queen" and "Pretty Vacant," even though he is no longer a member of the band. It
2: did do that because there
1: was a story that he to do it. Yeah, it's not true. No, no. I mean, I did, obviously I interviewed Glenn at length. Um, a couple of times and uh, yeah no he's definitely on it and the diaries Sophie Sophie, who was the diary at Glitterbest refers to uh, the hiring of Glenn for that session in in her diary from the time so um, but uh, after that Steve Jones plays bass so that's kind of the story of the album if you like now the interesting thing is that the Sex Pistols, although they only existed as a recording band, they only existed between May 1976 and August of 1977, they actually went through four producers. And the weird thing about it is that all geniuses, in their own way. So the, the weird thing is their first producer is Chris Spending who was, of course, famous for motorbiking and had played on numerous tracks, famous tracks from the 60s and 70s as a guitarist um, and was dating the future Mrs. Rotten, Nora. Um, And so he actually volunteered to take them in the studio and produce a demo to prove that they could play. That was the idea. It was literally, I'm going to prove that they could play. And that was sabotaged by the media who insisted that since the guitar parts were so good, it must have been Chris Spedding overdubbing Steve Jones. Not true. Complete nonsense. Um, Dave Goodman was the sound man. Dave's no longer with us. Lovely guy. And we're going to hear some more of Dave's things as the evening goes on. But the, he was the sound man for the Sex Pistols because he was cheap. And he came with a PA. Um, But um, by the summer of 1976, uh, Malcolm had realized that he actually had a pair of ears and he was still cheap. So he convinced them, uh, the band, to go into the rehearsal studio. They baffled all the studio up and Dave produced the first Sex Pistols demos, the seven songs that make up the first side of Spunk. Um, McLaren always loved the Goodman tapes and when they got a record deal with EMI the idea was actually he managed to strong arm EMI into using Dave Goodman to produce the first single and the first single was Anarchy in the UK really 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 sad that that was not released as the first single uh, one of, would have been one of the most apocalyptic records of all time. Uh, the interesting thing is the original plan was to release that as the A-side and No Fun, which ended up on the B-side pretty vacant as the B-side. Uh, that would have been quite a statement. Stooges on one side and that on the other. Um, EMI, needless to say, balked at the idea um, and thought it was noisy and uh, wanted the band to go in and re-record the song. Um, Malcolm McLaren, smart dude that he was, suggested using Chris Thomas. Now, Chris Thomas used to work at EMI. Chris Thomas' first job as a recording engineer was for the Beatles on the White Album. Had gone on to work at Air Studios with George Martin and produced the early all the early Rocks Music albums, which are, of course, fabulous. Um, John Cale's Paris 1919, many other great records. Fabulous producer. He was also a personal friend of McLaren's. McLaren used to go in the shop all the time, into the sex shop, and, um, and they knew each other through the music scene. Um, so it was a very smart choice on McLaren's part, Chris told me when I interviewed him for my Nevermind the Bollocks book that all he did was copy Dave's notes uh, when he produced the single that did come out. Um, And it's a great single. I don't think it's quite what we just listened to, but it's a great single. Weirdly enough, after that, EMI wanted them to record some more demos of what was going to be the album. Uh, chris wasn't interested in doing demos, of course, quite reasonably, um, so they got a young kid who was working as a recording engineer at Abbey Road to uh produce half a dozen songs of the of the pistols, one of which was a song called "No Future," which of course became "God Save the Queen." The producer in question was a guy called Mike Thorne. Mike Thorne were gone to produce. The fabulous punk band Wire and will produce Pink Flag their debut album one of the seminal albums of 1977 uh, but at the time he was just an unknown recording engineer at EMI and those demos were pretty much forgotten and of course a week after he recorded those demos the Sex Pistols were unceremoniously booted off the EMI record label um, for all of that Malcolm tried to make light of it. He was, of course, furious that they were kicked off the label. Um, But the band were kicking their heels. And so he said, well, let's go into the studio and cut some more demos with Dave Goodman. They went into a studio called Gooseberry Studios and cut six new songs, including their their three newest songs, Liar, God Save the Queen and a song they'd specially written for the occasion called EMI. And uh, um, that makes up the second side of the Spunk album. Um, by this point, Glenn Matlock is not getting along with Johnny Rotten. And a week after that, Glenn told him he was, had enough, he was leaving the band. Malcolm, being the s- smart Svengali that he was, immediately phoned, phoned up all the music papers and told them that Glenn had been fired, <laughs> which was news to Glenn. But um, uh, at that point, they have a problem. They just fired not only their best play, the the bass player, the best musician in the band and the guy who wrote all the songs, which you might think was a disadvantage. They'd also hired a man who was completely incompetent, could not play the bass to save his life, uh, uh, thought that being a rock star was cool, um, and wasn't particularly bright into the bargain. Oh, and had a propensity for violence, hence the name Sid Vicious, which actually had been bequeathed to him by Johnny Rotten um he'd already been guilty of two incidents of extreme violence in 76 once when he glassed nick kent the enemy journalist at a sex pistols concert and the following uh month he also threw a glass and blinded a girl in one eye during the hundred club punk festival for which he was quite rightly charged prosecuted and given a criminal record which would ultimately become a problem when he needed to go to America. So not a good start. At that point, in fairness to Sid, he wasn't yet a junkie <laughs> and he hadn't yet met the appalling Nancy Spungin. So, um, but he'd get there fairly soon. Um, by the time, as I said, that um, A&M had expressed an interest in signing the label of uh, the band and were prepared to fund another set of sessions, um, they needed to get a bass player. So they said, I know a bass player. A guy called Glenn Matlock used to be in a punk band. And they rehired Glenn for two days and recorded God Save the Queen, Pretty Vacant and Did You Know Wrong, the B-side of God Save the Queen. Um, So I guess if they'd broken up then, they'd still have been a legend. Um, Chris Thomas was back at the helm. Chris Thomas was determined to produce an album that would cross over, that would cross into the mainstream. He was determined to make an album that hit hard. Um, And Steve Jones... Uh, of all the Sex Pistols was the one that was most interested in the process. And he started to realize that in a multi-track studio, you can just layer instruments. So he starts layering what has been described, I think quite rightly, as guitar soup. When we listen to the whole of Bollocks after the break, you will hear that guitar soup. Uh, He also, as I suggested, had ushered Sid out of the studio so he could overdub all of his bits as well um so it's Steve Jones album certainly as much as it is Johnny Rotten's album uh obviously by that point they knew the songs inside out they've been playing uh nine of the songs that are on the album for months um and it was the core of their live set since November 75 so they just needed to get it down Thomas was very smart. He didn't overwork them. They would go in the studio for one, two days at a time, record, after, you know, three, four tracks in a day. Then he'd move on, do three, four, bring them back. Three weeks later, do it again, rather than actually trying to record the album in one go. Of course, they start this process, before they've even got three tracks down, A&M just changed their mind, and fire them if this was real this is a ten thousand pound record it's actually a pirate copy you'd have to know it was a pirate copy it's very well done but of course the dead giveaway is coloured vinyl (laughs) Um, but beautifully well done as I say a ten thousand pound record because when A&M threw them off the label They destroyed all the copies, or supposedly. And the story is there was one box that survived the cull. Um, But I believe even Glenn Matlock had to pay £500 for his copy. And that's at the time. Um, Originally, due to have no feelings on the B-side, the Dave Goodman version of no feelings was going to be the B-side... Again McLaren always loved the sound that they've got and he thought it was more punk he didn't he wasn't a fan of the slick pop sound so McLaren was always pushing for the album to be much more like the demos at some point he realises this isn't going to happen Chris Thomas is a seriously experienced knowledgeable producer knows how to use multi track Bill Price, who was the engineer on Nevermind the Bollocks, one of the great rock engineers, but he's going to make a rock album. He doesn't give a shit about safety pins. He doesn't give a shit about sun headlines. He just wants to make a great rock album. So Malcolm, who'd always had very good contacts in the record business, phones out his friend Mark Zamati in Paris. Now Mark had a label called Sky Dog, uh, and they started out by putting out bootlegs, and then they sort of went semi-official, and they released an album called Metallic KO by Iggy and the Stooges. But Mark was always a bit of a wide boy. He's gone now. Lovely guy. Moroccan. uh, Sadly, no longer with us. And they cooked up an idea to release an alternate version of the Sex Pistols album. And the album they were going to put out was going to be the Dave Goodman album. And they had various motives behind this decision, but probably paramount was fucking Richard Branson over. Because they'd ended up, the Sex Pistols ended up on the label they least wanted to be on. They wanted to be on a big worldwide label. They wanted to make a splash. They... Malcolm very quickly realized the sort of person Branson was. Um, he didn't really want to do business with him. He didn't trust him quite reasonably. The man had been done for that fraud, after all. Um, and, uh, and he knew not to trust him. Malcolm, unlike Bernie Rhodes and The Clash, bothered to read contracts, and he also understood how to play people off against each other. So, his master scheme, and of course this was all under wraps, this was all undercover, he goes to the biggest independent pressing plant in England, Linertone, and presses up an album by a band called Spunk on Blank Records Uh, with a list of song titles that make no sense. The one we just listened to, Anarchy, is called Nookie on the album Uh, the the copy that we have on the turntable is the copy that I bought in Rough Trade Records the week it came out from the man who would end up running the biggest independent record company in the UK Jeff Travis Um, and it still has in the groove the LYN number to prove it was pressed at Linertone uh, most copies had that scratched out so that it couldn't be traced. Uh, but the early ones didn't. And the, single, the album comes out and Sounds, who were the first music magazine to actually push the Sex Pistols, not Enemy, uh, were given a world exclusive, a copy of Spunk to review. And they ran a full-page story by Chester Wally on the Sex Pistols bootleg the week before Richard Branson thinks I'm going to be rich when this album comes out I've got it made but Malcolm wasn't done that wasn't the end of it not only does he put the bootleg out he tells Richard that the French album which is only 11 tracks is going to come out a week early and the English album is going to be swamped with imports Branson's beside himself he's got the 11 track album he hasn't got the 12 track album He, in a mad panic they press up the 11 track album which is the one we're going to listen to and a single sided single that is slipped inside the album submission to stop the French imports swamping the UK market and then they have to go and repress the album as a 12 track album which they managed very quickly. Um, but Branson is furious. Uh, but Malcolm has, the master of chaos, has had his way. <laughs> He's got three Sex Pistols albums on the street in the space of 10 days. Um, and nobody knows what they're buying. Uh, if you buy the 11-track album as many of my friends did, they didn't even know what it was. I mean, they didn't know why it had a single in it. Nobody really knew what the album was. And of course, part of the beauty of the album is the absolute unhelpfulness of the sleeve notes, (laughs) because there aren't any. It's the most, you know, uh, uninformative album sleeve of all time. It makes Joy Division album sleeves look informative. Um, So the album which was originally not going to have the singles, of course, they had no songs. They'd stopped writing because they'd fired the songwriter. That's usually a clue. Um, they'd only written two songs in the last year, Bodies and Holidays in the Sun. And McLaren, determined to get the Sex Pistols into the singles charts, had released one of those as a single just before the album came out. So, suddenly, they had no tracks to fill up the album. Satellite, which is the one song they had left over, which we'll also play later, is actually the B-side of Holidays. So, they're screwed. Basically, they haven't got enough songs. The decision is made to put all four singles on the album. Um, And they really don't have any choice, frankly. But... um, Uh, There is, of course, a lot of bad press about this. However, the album goes to number one the first week that it comes out. So anyone who thinks that punk was some kind of minority interest, unheard of, unheard of for a band of such notoriety um, who've only been in existence for 18 months... First album, straight to number one. And that is how important the album was. Of course, the establishment were never going to allow that to happen. So immediately, the uh, the manager of the Nottingham branch of Virgin Records is arrested under the Obscene Publication Act <laughs> for displaying a cover with the word bollocks. Again, Malcolm comes into his own. And Richard Branson, in fairness, comes into his own because he first of all makes it clear that he's prepared to pay whatever it costs for a legal team to be put together to fight the case. And he looks in his own address book to find the guy that got him out of his VAT problem was a gentleman called John Mortimer, who you will know from Rumpole of the Bailey, who was at the time a QC... And John Mortimer gets his own address book out and phones up all these seriously important English scholars and academics to testify that bollocks is not a rude word. <laughs> and they all appear in court. I mean, you know, a professor from Oxford saying bollocks goes back a thousand years and quoting Chaucer. And needless to say, they run circles around the CPS and the case is thrown out. The Sun headline for the next day, uh, newspaper, which I reproduce in the Never Mind the box thing, the front-page headline is the guy, the Virgin record store manager, holding up the album sleeve, and the headline reads, And the same to you. (laughs) And, uh, of course, uh, the album cover stayed. Uh, and obviously the album became something of a classic. Uh, but needless to say, the Sex Pistols never recorded again.
2: Uh,
1: they recorded a very bad home demo of Belson was a cast, but that was the only studio recording they ever did after the completion of Never Mind the Bollocks. Um, there is something rather fitting, though, about the idea that the Sex Pistols' entire recording career is condensed into one album and four B-sides. And if Never Mind the Bollocks doesn't spin your wheels and you want something a bit grittier, you even have the alternative of Spunk. And obviously these days, it's not a problem. Spunk has now been released officially. Uh, There are two different versions of Spunk. And of course, Branson could never... Proved that McLaren was behind Spunk. And it was only many, many years later when I interviewed Mark Zamati shortly before he died that he finally owed up to the fact that, yes, the two of them cooked up the project in order to screw the record company over.
0: After listening to the record, we had a post-album discussion and a bit of a and a
2: the question I wanted to ask is simply, why did they employ somebody who couldn't play bass after Glenn Matlock
1: left? Um, because it was a power play by Johnny Rotten. So the, th- the problem, the sad part of the story of the Pistols is that, you know, Rotten was a fun- seriously insecure individual and still is. And the way that he saw it, is that he forced Matlock out of the band, but, of course, Jones and Cook were thick as thieves. So to balance the power play in the band, he had to have his mate in the band. Now, of course, he had three mates, all called John. Um, uh, uh, One couldn't play at all, uh, and the other two barely could play, Jar Wobble and Sid Vicious, who was, of course, John Beverley. Um, And sadly, he picked the wrong one. Jar Wobble would have been a fine choice, but. Um, who he later went with. Who he later went with, yeah. yeah. And who learned to play bass very quickly. You know, where Jar was a competent bass player within six months picking up the instrument. Um,
2: what but, did the other two think about it? I mean, didn't Jones and. Uh, uh, Jones uh, and Cook
1: did what they were told. You know, I mean, uh, McLaren, part of the problem is that McLaren liked the idea of a band who couldn't play and the problem is that he had this idea of creating a band that couldn't play but would become big anyway and so he put these four guys together who were phenomenal and were some of the best musicians you could have found and had everything that you could possibly want which is exact opposite of what he set out to do um and that kind of threw him you know and he he kind of invented a version of the Sex Pistols' history. But the fact of the matter is that for all the credit I give him for everything that he did, he got it completely wrong because the whole idea that anybody can do this was actually completely exploded by the Sex Pistols, who are far too good to actually imbue that aesthetic. And if you look at the bands that they directly inspire, the bands that I cover in Anakin Year Zero... They all could play. That's the problem. You know, if you think of a band like Wire, or you think of a band like X-Ray Specs, Laura Logic was a superb saxophonist. You know, the Wire guys had been in a prog band before they were in a punk band. I mean, Pink Flag, they're faking it. They can play absolutely superbly. They just created this, you know, punk version of what they were. Um, So... You know, Malcolm's dream of creating this great movement where everybody could do it actually was a fallacy, and that's part of what happens to punk. That The people who buy into that, who come along later, the johnny come lates, are the ones that destroy punk because guess what? They really can't play.
0: Okay. and anyone else? Richard, you have a question? It's about Malcolm McLaren in the sense that because he couldn't control sex pistols, is that true? Like, could he, why did he stay with as, as the manager? That's the that I mean, I've got.
1: It's not that he couldn't control sex pistols. He couldn't control Johnny Rotten. You know, once, uh, once they become famous, you know, and Johnny kind of gets this, starts to realise the power that he has, and that Malcolm is just the manager. You know, uh, then he can't control it. So, you know, the Again, the thing that I talk about in the book is that, you know, in 1976, he's feeling off the anger and the negativity of the audiences. And that's why they're incredible. Because he's got something to react against. He's fighting these people in the audience. Most people, 90% of the audience hate what they're hearing. And that actually works. Because he doesn't know how to react to fans who love it. By 1977, it doesn't matter how bad it is. The fans are buying completely into it. So anyone who saw the shows in England in 77 on the Spots tour or the Nevermind the Bands tour saw a band that actually was a pale shadow of what they'd been, but the audience just lapped it up. Um, and um, so uh, Malcolm pulls his last masterstroke, which is to send them to America where they're going to be hated. And then he books them into venues where they're definitely going to be hated. In the Deep South. I mean, I have my yeah. Canes T-shirt on underneath my shirt. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the last standing venue of the, the Pistols played in Tulsa. And, I mean, those Deep South concerts, I mean, they, they're well, carnage. Very they're violent, at, yeah. Yeah, but yeah. Johnny Rotten, who's been cruising through these shows in 77, suddenly rediscovers himself and becomes the same person he was in 1976. Because he's got something to react against and he loves the fact they're throwing things at him and he loves the antagonism of the performance and it is genuine chaos. You know, obviously Sid's out of it the bands don't know. They're playing relatively big venues. Some of those venues are a couple of thousand people, which is more than they use, they, you know, they play to. And it's chaos. It's that, and, and he's loving it. Johnny is loving it. And, uh, uh, and obviously that comes across on the final
0: show. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Simon Curtis, a man of the people.
2: Yeah, that's that's not really a question. I just just want to say you should never underestimate the, uh, for instance, the Sex Pistols to surprise. And I'll give you an example. Um, I saw them in 2002 at Crystal Palace at the sports track. um, The Jubilee gig? That's right, yeah. Yeah. Pistols at the Palace. And um, it just totally threw me when they came on stage and The first song I ever saw the Sex Pistols play, totally out of left field, was "Silver Machine." Oh yeah, of course, yeah,
1: yeah, you're right, yeah, 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 that show, yeah, yeah. Um, But yeah, I mean, I I mean, I remember seeing them at uh, Shepherd's Bush Empire in '96, and um, yeah, I never saw the Vicious Era band. So I only had the orig- that image of the band with Matlock. But I remember they came on at Shepherd's Bush, which was obviously homecoming. You know, they were a Shepherd's Bush band. I mean, to play the Shepherd's Bush Empire was a big deal. Uh, and it only holds 1,500, so relatively intimate. Um, but they came on and they started... Actually, I think they played something weird, like Did You Know Wrong or something as an opener. But... Um, but the instant that you heard them plug in, it was that sound. It was like, that's the sound. That is the sound of that band. There wasn't any sense that they'd lost whatever that chemistry was. You know, they lost it when Sid joined the band. But Glenn, you can't you can't discount Glenn's contribution. I mean, you know, I mean, rhythm sections are acts of God. They got nothing to do with ability you know you you know but uh, you know if if you put ringo Starr with paul mccartney you know um it just works for some reason i don't i, mean, I personally i don't think ringo is the greatest drummer in the world but um but he just it sinks you know and rhythm sections are just it's it's a fluke it's an absolute fluke when they sink
3: but when they do you can't get back there. You can't replace that, you know. Now, um, one person that you've, you've not mentioned tonight is a guy called Wally Nightingale.
1: Yeah. And
3: was he then kicked out of the embryonic Sex Pistols because he could play? Was it? Was he too good
1: for... Uh, well, he could play. I mean, that is absolutely true. Wally Nightingale was the original uh, founder of the band, really. Uh, the... <laughs> the uh, I remember um, Lee Woods, who wrote Dylan, uh, Pistols Day by Day, and I had gone over to Wally's, this is in the 80s, and he swore blindly he had a tape of the Swankers, which was the band that the Sex Pistols were when he was in it. <laughs> we went over to his place and he pulled this cassette out, and it says, it said on the label, Swankers, you know. I'm like, "This is this is going to be unbelievable, this is you know the pistols in 1975 before johnny joins and he puts it in and the first note of the first song of the first pretenders album he'd recorded over the whole rehearsal oh. <laughs> oh. absolute absolutely true story yeah 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 and uh uh yeah very but uh yeah and yeah, no, poor wally but uh yeah, I don't think he was destined to be a superstar, I'm afraid. Yeah, But for those who don't remember, there was a very famous NME story that Wally Nightingale was, in fact, Elvis Costello. Absolutely serious. In the teaser section, they had a new story claiming that Wally Nightingale was, in fact, Elvis Costello.
0: I, I'm just wondering how many people in the audience who can remember this all happening, or this kicking off, I know some of you, but... I think there's quite a few of us looking at the creases and wrinkles. And... What, what are you implying? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> but our time's... So my wife was going to come tonight, but um, she hasn't, which is a shame because she was a glue-sniffing punk and now she's the right Reverend Kate Reynolds of this parish. <laughs> so... I went to a funeral
1: of a dear friend of mine It was the girlfriend of the guitarist in The Only One's. And uh, it's the only time I ever met... uh, This is relatively recently, probably 10 years ago. And and at the funeral was Sue Catwoman and Jordan from the sex shop, uh, who, of course, I have emblazoned in my mind from pictures on the great rock and roll swindle records, you know, of of them as, you know, nubile, young, uh, whatever. And, of course, you know, Jordan was a vet... (laughs) In Brighton, sadly now gone, and Sue Catwoman was a teacher in Bristol. You know,
3: <laughs> am I right in thinking that Peter Perrett, the guy who was the singer with the Only Ones, auditioned to be the singer of the Pistols?
1: No, oh, no, no, not no, right? no. I mean, he, I mean, Peter. Obviously, I go into it in Anakin the Azero because you know Peter's an old friend, and it was great to get a first-hand account about the relationship between Peter and and the sex pistols but the interesting thing the most interesting thing given that she recently died and everyone was talking about what an amazing clothes designer she was is that vivian so pete's wife cena comes from a large greek family of um women who knit and and so you know and uh vivian had set up sex and the thing that nobody talks about is all of the clothes fell apart. And they were very, very expensive. Because Viv was a lousy... I mean, her ideas were great, but, you know. And so when she met Zena, it, it was the answer to all her prayers. So the beauty of this is they're doing all this fetish wear, and there are these middle-aged Greek women, <laughs> all in Forest Hills in London all stitching all the stuff together. They don't know what they are. They don't know why there's so much rubber. They don't understand. <laughs> I mean, but they're, they're doing this fantastic job. And so, in fact, ironically, the Perrots actually saved Vivian's career uh, because the stuff she was making prior to her involvement with the Perrots, uh, nobody would have bought because it wouldn't have lasted. So, uh, But Perrott and McLaren were very close. And but Peter was far, t- far too good to join the Sex Pistols at that point. And already, the only ones are already in au- au- auditioning.
0: How, how many people can remember Pontefract's premier... Well, Pontefract's only punk band. Thrust, who, who named themselves after the local petrol station. <laughs> and your point is... <laughs> It's just wonderful. That was, that was Pontifract's major contribution to the Yeah. And and which uh, was that? Thrust. <laughs> fucking fucking keep keep up, Simon. Jesus Christ. where, which one was
1: that? Thrust. As a member of sales only punk band, <laughs> I can assure you it was yeah.
0: They were all springing up all over. Yeah, I remember yeah. coming back from, from New York in nineteen seventy six and when I mean, the guy I went with was the only person I knew in Pontefract that had been to America. And we were the only white people that we saw that wore, had flared, flared jeans on. And we thought, everybody's gone back to wearing normal parallel Levi's. Yeah, yeah. So soon we got back to Pontefract, I went to the famous army stores and I bought a traditional pair of Levi 501s. And I walked in Blackie, Blackie Mall Saturday afternoon. We used always to meet there. And everybody started laughing at me. <laughs> everybody was used to at... that
1: by now. Yeah, I mean,
0: uh... <laughs> you can you can get through that window, you know. <laughs> and then within two months, flares had just gone. It, it's yeah, well, things. of
1: course, uh, Gang of Four, who were at Leeds University, um, uh, and uh, at that point were studying art and design. Uh, they, in the summer vacation in seventy-seven they all flew to New York to check out the New York punk scene, stayed with Mary Harron, who who was one of the figures that set up Punk Magazine in New York, and she ends up coming back with the Gang of Four to England to be introduced to the Sex Pistols. Um, So there was some awareness of, you, you know, the interaction between the two places. I mean, obviously, Gang of Four, again... Uh, were having to pick up their instruments and learn to play them, but um, a, a wonderful band <coughs> in the end. Um, and, uh, yeah, the Leeds punk scene.
0: Yeah, It's very much like the skiffle thing, though, isn't it? It'd punk and skiffle and everybody could three chords and they're away, weren't they? Do you have anything to finish off? Or a nice <laughs> little story to finish off this evening? <laughs> no pressure yeah thanks i'm glad you prompted me well you haven't stopped talking all night so i thought you'd be able to
3: get one in go on you mentioned um a few minutes ago about johnny rotten wanting to sort of control freakery kind of thing of the band did that inform his decision to take steve jones to court about this film or program that steve jones was making where he was using Sex Pistols songs.
1: Well, no, I mean, the okay. thing is that the... So the original agreement that the band always had was that it was a majority decision mm-hmm. about anything to do with the publishing. Mm-hmm. Um, and they all agreed to it. Mm-hmm. The truth of the matter is when they were offered the the series, which I haven't seen, but the mm-hmm. series, that, the Pistols series, which is obviously based on Steve Jones' book, but is about the Sex Pistols... Um, the truth of the matter is it went to a majority decision. Now, obviously, Matlock, Cook, and Jones, yeah. all of whom could do with the money, all went,
3: yes. Too, Jones, yeah. Well, Rotten is outvoted then. Yeah. You know, he took it to court, mm. but... You see, I mean, surely John, Johnny Rotten, when he signed that agreement in yeah. the 70s or whatever, he would surely know that Jones and Cook particularly were going to... Gang up on him. Well, he, he, yeah. I'm pretty sure he yeah. knew all of yeah. them were going to yeah. gang up on yeah. him. Yeah, I mean, they're not... So it makes you wonder why he took the action. Um,
1: well, I could speculate, but yeah. yeah I mean, the answer is, um, you, you know, he, uh, he thought that he could get them to back down, um, you know, I mean, because he's Johnny Rotten, mm. I guess. But, I mean, the truth is, he was never going to win that argument never going to win it. Not legally, and he wasn't going to... And, he, and if, he, if he used, and I don't know that he did, I'm putting words in his mouth, but if he used as a threat to the other three, if you do this, there won't be any more sex pistols reunions at this point. That's not going to scare him. I suspect
0: that that agreement was a Simon, use this mic, mate, because you really get on my tits now.
2: <laughs> I, sus- I suspect that that agreement, the majority thing, was probably a post-reunion agreement, because Matlock had gone in the 70s anyway, so... No, but they
1: had to... No, when they... So the 79 trial against McLaren, so it goes back to that. So in 1979, in order to get the rights back, because, of course, McLaren owned everything, they had to take them to court. Rotten had burnt his bridges with every single other member of the band, and at that point, he needed the other members of the band to have a, not a class action, but an action against McLaren that was united. And so he had to eat humble pie to get the others to agree. Now, of course, all of those parties, including John Beverley's uh, mother, the woman that murdered him, um, (laughs) were all part of that action. So, you know, basically, so Rotten signed that agreement to get them to take the court action against McLaren to get the money from Glitterbest. Now, by 1979, John was in a bad way. I'm pretty sure he would not n- remember that he signed that because he was taking a lot of very bad advice at that point. Keith Levine, by that point, was a junkie. John Wobble uh, was virtually on his way out of the band and he had a lot of problems. John almost certainly had a nervous breakdown. I mean, all of the symptoms, those first two years that he was in pill, uh, everything that he was doing suggests that he actually had had a major nervous breakdown. And, you know, he was sleeping 12 hours a day. He was doing all the things that, you know, suggested he actually was dealing with a real trauma. Um, But it's something that he never came to terms with.
2: Actually, it reminded me of another question I meant to ask tonight. (laughs) When when they have all these news stories about this and the other who do you have any knowledge of who is the beneficiaries who who is the estate of sid vicious because his mother's dead
1: his mother's dead yeah i don't the answer is i don't know i've but i mean obviously i mean in, in his case because of so if you if you look at your first pressing and never mind the bollocks of course emi is credited to vicious um, which of course also ended up in a lawsuit. Uh, it is of course no, incontestably a Matlock song. So Sid only owns two of the of the songs.
2: I know, but, it, but my point is, it's it's still whether it's pennies or not. It's still income. It's got to. It go, is, but got it's to not go somewhere. But it's not significant. Does he have any siblings? I, I mean, he doesn't.
1: I mean, I don't know about his. Obviously, his mother Anne. I don't know. I've no idea. But the point being that. You know, uh, he's... The the money is in the publishing, and the publishing, two out of 16 songs, it's
2: neither here nor there. Well, I'm I'm reminded of the case of Pete Best with the Beatles anthology, who um, featured on about six songs on the first issue. Yeah, yeah. It was in three parts, wasn't it, the Beatles anthology? Yeah, yeah. And he was on about six or seven songs of But most of those are covers.
1: Most of those are covers. I mean, Best
2: Me, Mucho... He, he, you know, he won. Apparently, at the behest of Paul McCartney, he one day opened a letter and it had a check for eight million quid in it.
1: Well, I I doubt it was that amount, but yeah. I mean, obviously, they owed Pete, and obviously, he'd not been rightly done by, you know. But, but it's not. um, It's got. It's not. You you know. Once the lawyers get involved, it's about. What what does it say in print? What is it, you know? Uh you know, the Sid Vicious thing is not an issue. The rest of the band finally, by nineteen ninety six, when they reformed, had to make it up with Matlock because they didn't have any choice. You know. Um I mean I was I was in America when they announced the reformation of the band in ninety six and I was in a bookstore on Hay Asbury in San Francisco, and the guy on the phone at the bookstore was telling his mates it was an absolute disgrace that the Sex Pistols had reformed and that he'd seen the real Sex Pistols, and, you know, meaning Winterland, and, uh, you know, he was ranting on and on, you know, how it was not not very punk and da-da-da-da. And he got off the phone, I walked up to him and said, you never saw the Sex Pistols. You saw the fake Sex Pistols. Winterland every single member of the band agrees is the worst concert they ever did. And that is not, you know, the real band.
0: And that's a nice way to finish with the Sex Pistols final concert. (laughs) Put it together. One of the Cat Club Classic presenters and guests, Clinton Aylin. Good night, God bless you, and happy trails.